Hi, and welcome to Office Hours, the podcast of Westminster Seminary, California, that takes you inside the seminary and face-to-face with our faculty. I'm Scott Clark. Today, we're talking with David Vendrunen, Robert B. Strimple Professor of Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics. He's author of A Biblical Case for Natural Law, editor of A Pattern of Sound Doctrine, co-editor of The Law is Not of Faith, and his latest book is Bioethics and the Christian Life, a guide to making difficult decisions. These titles are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Dave, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks. Good to be here. Well, you have a new book, and it is a, it's a compelling title, and it's obviously addressing uh, very uh, difficult uh, issues. First of all, let, let's do uh, first things first. Uh, what is bioethics? Well, as the name itself indicates, it's uh, about ethics uh, that has to do with life. That's bioethics. And in some sense, bioethics is, is very broad. Uh, people have been thinking about bioethics questions for as long as human beings have been on this earth. It's questions about life and death and the moral decisions that arise in that context. But really the whole discipline of bioethics and really the, the term itself is a fairly recent one, and it's arisen... Uh, because of the explosion of medical technology over the past several decades. And there are just all sorts of questions in regard to the creation of life and the end of life and treatment of illness that people couldn't even imagine even uh, a few decades ago. Is it the case that, uh, is it, you, you mentioned technology, is it just technology or have people's expectations changed relative to technology as well? Well, it's uh, it's really some of both, I think. Uh, thinking about life and thinking about death is it is fundamentally essential to who we are as human beings. Uh, people have always been thinking about what does it mean to die? How do I prepare to die? How do I die well? Um, we can go to Scripture and find people struggling with issues of conception and infertility. So these are not new uh, issues. But as technology has advanced... Uh, people's expectations, as you say, really have uh, uh, been uh, strengthened uh, so much. Uh, we can do so many things now that we couldn't do. There's, there seems to be hope for people who can't have children, who before would simply have to live with the fact that they can't have children. Um, there are so many illnesses that even a few decades ago would have meant death imminently, and now we can sometimes cure them, sometimes keep people alive, uh, with an illness for months or years at a time. And so now I think people have, have a sense that uh, by our own powers, by our own technological powers, we can do so many more things as human beings, that we can uh, enhance our lives and uh, lengthen our lives. And uh, as technology increases, so I think our, our expectations about what we can do and what, what medicine can do for us certainly have uh, increased as well. Do you? Uh, I, I know one of the issues that has been in the news quite a bit lately is the question of stem cells. Uh, do you address that in the book? Uh, I do. Um, one of the uh, key issues, of course, that um, stem cell research uh, entails is is that of the human embryo, and 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 what do we make of the human embryo, and how should we? treat the human embryo. And so I actually have a whole chapter in the book which deals with this question of what is the human embryo. And I try to to look at it biblically and then uh, try to uh, interact with some of the scientific claims that are being uh, made today. 
And I defend the position that the human embryo is, uh, it is a human person, and it, uh, its life needs to be protected. And so in that context, then, uh, it, it, it certainly affects our, our whole perspective on, on stem cell research, uh, embryonic stem cell research, research that involves the destruction of uh, a human embryo, I believe, is uh, in, in inherently immoral. And um, I think a lot of our um, a lot of people today have been fooled into thinking that we really need to support this out of uh, out of compassion for people who are suffering with various uh, illnesses. Wouldn't it be better to help someone who's suffering now than isn't that a, a a good thing that outweighs whatever kind of moral question might arise about destroying an embryo that no one wants anyway? Is there an alternative to using stem cells? Well. For one thing, uh, a lot of the, uh, the the promises of stem cell research are, are, are still just that promises. We don't we don't have a lot of concrete uh, solutions that 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 we have been promised. But the fact is is that uh, there are uh, a lot of ways we can do stem cell research without destroying embryos. Uh, there are uh, umbilical cord blood uh, stem cells. Um, there are a, a all sorts of ad- advances in um, adult stem cells. And uh, even in the last couple of years, um, there are now ways uh, in which uh, scientists can create pluripotent uh, stem cells um, without creating human embryos, uh, without destroying human embryos. And so I think in some ways the uh, debate can be transcended. Uh, we, we can have a lot of the, the benefits of stem cell research without destroying embryos along the way. Let me back up and, and uh, try to get at some uh, really basic questions. The, the first thing that occurred to me uh, as you were discussing some of these uh, issues is something that I used to think before I was a Christian and something I've heard people say relative to, to these things, and, and that comes up relative to the question of technology. The Bible is a very old book. Uh, it was completed um, you know, 2,000 years ago. How on earth, and you, you, you touched on this implicitly early in, in our discussion, but how on earth can we try to take a 2,000-year-old book and use that to give us answers to questions that are being raised by technology that maybe didn't even exist 10 years ago? I think that's a great question, and I think you have your finger on why bioethics is such a difficult question for a lot of conservative Christians. Uh, conservative Christians, uh, like the kind of people who support Westminster Seminary California, um, uh, tend to have very strong moral views. Uh, uh, we are against moral relativism. Uh, we believe that there is right and wrong over against our broader culture. But we also like to be able to go to Scripture and to find explicit answers to our ethical problems. And the fact is, is that for so many of these bioethics questions, we just can't, as you say, we can't go to Scripture and pull out a passage that just gives us a clear answer about whether we should stop treatment for uh, our grandparent who is, uh, seems to be on the verge of death. We just don't have an answer to that. So what I think we, we need to do, and one of the things that I try to do in my book, is to identify uh, important theological uh, principles that uh, Scripture sets forth. Uh, I explore questions about our theology of God's sovereignty, our theology of the image of God and human dignity, our theology of death, our theology of suffering. All of these things are, are crucial if we're, we're to make good bioethics uh, decisions. And I also explore the question of, of 
of Christian virtues? What are the virtues that uh, Scripture sets forth uh, before us? Uh, what are the virtues that the Holy Spirit is uh, instilling in us in our sanctification? And when we think about virtues like hope, courage, contentment, uh, wisdom, I mean, these are, uh, these are virtues that uh, are certainly going to be crucial uh, for our making good bioethics uh, decisions. And so uh, I think what we have to do in answer to your question is identify those things that Scripture does say, and then seek with a lot of wisdom uh, to try to apply these things to very concrete, specific circumstances that we face now. I want to get back to that question of wisdom, because I think that's essential. Uh, but what does it mean to talk about a distinctively Christian approach to these issues? Uh, how should—is there a, a uniquely Christian way of addressing these? And, and if so, how does it relate to other approaches to uh, end-of-life issues or bioethics in general? Sure. Uh, that's a, uh, it's an important question and uh, a big question, and it's, it's one that I wrestle with in the first chapter of, of, of my book. And on the one hand, I think it really is important for us as believers uh, to recognize that we have to be engaged in bioethics discussions with the broader world, uh, because so many of these questions at some level involve uh, public policy issues political issues, when we're talking about abortion, or we're talking about euthanasia, or stem cell research, or so many other things, is that there is a political dimension to these things. And I think we need to think seriously about how we can interact with unbelievers uh, in the public square, uh, even if they don't want to submit to Scripture, even if they don't want to acknowledge the God that we worship. Uh, we still need to think about how we can winsomely and prudently uh, try to make our, our case. And in that sense, I think it's, it's very encouraging for us to be reminded that Scripture tells us that all creation testifies of God, uh, that God's law is written on the heart of every person. Every person has a conscience, and every person knows uh, that life is valuable, uh, that uh, human beings have a responsibility to uh, uphold life. Uh, now, that being said, uh, that doesn't mean that bioethics is simply, uh, you know, some kind of a neutral uh, endeavor by any means. Um, certainly, as, as believers, uh, we are, are going to be fighting and uh, upholding the value of life in ways that we don't expect often unbelievers uh, to do so uh, because of uh, the work of the Spirit in our hearts, uh, because of uh, the testimony of God's Word on this matter. But even, even beyond uh, uh, that, uh, if we really believe the things that Scripture tells us, even beyond what, what natural revelation tells us, if we believe that Jesus Christ went down to death for us, if we believe that God raised him from the dead, if we believe that we have uh, an eternal inheritance, we have eternal life in him, uh, how can that not affect the way that we evaluate life here in this, on this earth? How can that not affect the way we approach death, the attitude with which we uh, approach death? Um, if death is, as we confess as Christians, an enemy, and yet a conquered enemy, uh, that gives us a whole new perspective on, on, on how we uh, approach some of these uh, very important uh, issues. When we're thinking about uh, illness or, or thinking about issues like infertility, in which we, uh, we know there's something we want. You know, we want health or we want, uh, we want children. Um, and sometimes we find that God doesn't give them to us. 
uh, we, 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 we go to medicine, uh, we go to the technology, and sometimes even then it doesn't help us. Um, the fact that we know that we have everything in Christ, uh, that our treasure is not in the things that, uh, that rust and moth uh, destroy, um, but in heaven, uh, that, that should give us a contentment, uh, even in the midst of, of our suffering, uh, that the world simply cannot know. Earlier, you used uh, what I think is probably a, a crucial noun for all of these questions, and that is the, the, you spoke of the image, human beings mm-hmm. as being made in the image. How, how does that affect the way you um, make ethical, moral, medical decisions relative to bioethics? Sure. I mean... I- I think there are uh, a, a great many implications, and I can only name uh, a few here. But uh, for one thing, the, the, the doctrine of the image of God— uh, What do it, we mean, by the way, when we say someone is made in the image of God? Sure. Uh, well, what we're saying is uh, we're, we're reflecting on that, on that affirmation uh, made in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and, and then repeated, of course, on a number of other occasions uh, uh, in Scripture— uh, that we as as human beings were were made specially by God. Uh, we were made with a particular uh, uh, dignity, nobility, with a particular task in this world. Uh, we were called uh, to not only to be like God, but we were in in the sense to act as, like God as well, to be rulers in this world uh, under the overlordship of God Himself. And as we think about that uh, in terms of bioethics. Um, for one thing, uh, that reminds us that every single person, male and female, uh, young and old, uh, have an inherent dignity. Uh, uh, they are, not, are never to be treated like something that is other than human, uh, like an animal. Um, and certainly that is going to uh, affect our perspective on uh, a whole lot of important bioethics issues like abortion, like stem cell research, like euthanasia. Um, one of the things that our doctrine of the image of God, I think a good Reformed theology of, of the image of God reminds us, is that we are created body and soul. Uh, we are not simply our bodies. And at the same time, we are not simply spirits floating around. We are, we are people who are made uh, with bodies and souls. And that's that, when we start exploring the implications for bioethics, that's certainly uh, profound. Because most of the of the things we're wrestling with with bioethics has to do with our body. There's there's something wrong with our bodies that we are uh, seeking to, uh, to to solve. And uh, how important it is to remember that uh, our bodies are uh, they're they're really part of us. Uh, we can never uh, tell someone who's who's suffering physically that it doesn't really matter because you're not really your body. Our bodies do matter, and we know that our bodies will be raised up uh, one day. Uh, they're they're precious in God's sight, but at the same time, our uh, our doctrine of of the image of God reminds us, on the one hand, uh, that our bodies are not all that we are, and that just because we see someone who has very small capabilities with their bodies, who are maybe helpless bodily, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that they've lost their dignity. It doesn't mean that they've lost their their humanity. And therefore, and, they're, they're still image bearers, right? That's right. That's right. And even those who are in the most weakest and humblest state in this life, 
uh, as Christians, our doctrine of the image of God is not simply that we were created originally in God's image, but that we're being recreated in the image of Christ, which means we are we have been called to be resurrected, not just to bear the image of God on this earth with our mortal bodies, uh, but to be raised up and to bear the image of God in bodies like Christ. And so this person that we might see, who's or even ourselves, suffering in our bodies now, uh, we remember that that is not all of who we are. That's not what we can be uh, reduced to. We have a hope that far transcends that. Talk a little bit about how people, uh, particularly in the medical profession, tend to think of human beings, and, and how, how is that different from uh, the way that we ought to think of human beings? Well, it's, it's of course, hard to generalize about the medical profession, since sure. there are uh, certainly um, people with all sorts of different kinds of philosophical and theological views and um, the medical uh, profession. But, I mean— is there, there, is there a sort of reigning paradigm, though, that, for example, that most medical students will have been taught in one way or another in, in med school? Or, or maybe we can't speak that way anymore. Yeah, I'm. I'm not sure that that I have I have really an inside track as to what sort of the the reigning philosophy might be in in a in a typical medical school. But I think that there are some uh, certainly are some uh, views that are common out there that that we should be uh, aware of. Um, certainly, there's a temptation in sort of the research medical world to look at at human beings as potential sources of data. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there are medical experimentations going on all the time for new drugs, for new new procedures, and of course that's I mean that that has to happen if there's if there's to be medical advance. Um, but it can be very very tempting to be uh, looking at people not as patients, not as human beings um, who need to be um, not just brought back to some state of health or to provide us data so we can help other people get health, but this is a human being who's in need of care, um, who, who needs to be uh, loved. Um, and that certainly is, is something that people will often complain about as they, as they go through the healthcare system, is that I, just, I, I, didn't, I wasn't treated like a person. I wasn't treated uh, like a human being who needed care. And I mean that's that's just one uh, example I think. Don't you think that um, one of the and I think that answer is very helpful. In fact, that wasn't where I was going at all. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciate that. But uh, my perception is that uh, there's been a tendency ever since really the middle of the 17th century, increasingly to reduce human beings to essentially machines, and and to uh, to look at us, you know, to look at the world in a mechanical way. And then to look at human beings as quintessentially nothing more than machines, and uh, it seems to me, at least implicitly, and I think explicitly, what you're saying uh, is a significant um, alternative, antithesis even to that way of looking at humans. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and 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 here we get back to our theology of the image of God. Uh, um, we as as human beings are not just bodies, but we are souls. And our bodies are not simply things that have been wound up to operate in a certain way, but they are um, they're precious in God's sight. Uh, and uh, we, as, uh, as Christians who are looking upon our fellow human beings, uh, ought to be looking at, at each other with that, um, um, with that love and that, that, that concern and that care for one another. Uh, it's not just a machine. It's not just a body. 
Let um, me let, let's change horses yeah. here for a minute and think about because you. I think you made a good point. You know, we pro- we probably can't simply assume that medical professionals uh, all look at things the same way. You know, we have medical professionals in our congregation, and uh, and they're certainly trying to serve uh, Christ as they fulfill their vocations. Um, and so, w- what about the Christian? Uh, working in the in the medical field, a physician or somebody else uh, like that, a researcher. Uh, for example, one of the things that occurred to me as we were talking is the question of the ethics panel. A lot of hospitals have now uh, a, a panel made up of maybe a local pastor, a rabbi, um, you know, medical professionals, a philosopher, you know, uh, how do we think about those panels? Uh, how and if you're a Christian working in in the medical industry, uh, how should you think about uh, those panels, and how, and how should we relate to them? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm uh, I'm I'm very conscious of my limitations here. I mean, I'm not a a medical professional. I I have a lot of medical professionals in in my family, and so I'm. Um, I'm, I'm very conscious of the fact that I, I don't know the, the, the insides of some of these things uh, the way, the way uh, others do. You know, on, on the one hand, it's, it's encouraging that we, I think we have uh, this concern about, about ethics. Uh, uh, you know, even if we can make all sorts of criticisms about all sorts of people who serve on these panels and their worldviews and all that, um, um, I think it's, it, 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 it is important that we recognize that, that when we're dealing with some of these life and death decisions, uh, when we're dealing with questions about, you know, is it, uh, should we use this person as part of, of this kind of experiment, uh, that we recognize that that's a morally rich question. Uh, it's, it, I think it'd be very dangerous if we didn't think of that as, as uh, a moral question. And I think uh, Christians who find themselves on... Uh, uh, in that kind of setting, in which they can contribute uh, to that, uh, I think should be grateful for that that opportunity. And it, it's going to require a lot of wisdom on their part to know how to, uh, in a civil and prudent way, uh, to bring home uh, some of the concerns that not just we as Christians distinctively have, but that all of us as human beings ought to have for one another if we are to have a something like a civil society. And... Um, what do you mean by wisdom? Now that's a word that's come up several times. It's a it's an important word. It's a biblical word, but it's it's not a word that perhaps everyone thinks about or has a, a really tight working definition. Sure, uh, we obviously find in in scripture a lot of laws, uh, a lot of commands, and we know that we are obligated to be following uh, God's commands. But um, really, the the question of wisdom comes up especially when we find ourselves making morally important decisions, but it's not necessarily clear that there is a specific command that we must follow in the circumstance. Wisdom uh, is uh, uh, the ability to understand how the world is put together. It's an ability to have, a, to, to have this bigger sense of how human beings interact with one another, to understand that certain sorts of actions have certain sorts of effects. Uh, that if I conduct myself in this way, this is likely to result. And wisdom, of course, is is set forth in Scripture in books like Proverbs and uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, help to to train us to uh, to understand how the broader world and especially the human order works, how things fit together. And because bioethics, as we know it today, 
so often involves questions that are not explicitly addressed in Scripture. Wisdom becomes so important uh, if we're, we're to make godly decisions in these things. And uh, wisdom counsels us, for example, uh, to uh, give thought to our ways, mm. right? to think about the consequences, all right? to, to be slow to act and speak. Uh, so what does that mean? Uh, well, that means that when we're making some of these, bio, these difficult bioethical decisions, we need to step back from just making an emotional decision, which is so tempting in so many bioethics situations, and to say, okay, what are the consequences of what I'm going to do? Will I, is this likely to create a situation that's better, or is this likely to create a whole new set of problems that I and other people are going to have to deal with? Wisdom counsels us to, uh, to get advice from others. Well, that's so important in bioethics. Now, so often, as we as Christians or all sorts of people, we don't really understand what our problem is. We don't know the medical issue involved, and we don't know what the options for treatment are, and we don't always know what the effects of that treatment are going to be. And so it's so important, I think, if we're wise to be asking advice, uh, to be asking from physicians, to be asking from others, what, what actually is at stake here? What, what are going to be the results? And those are just a couple of examples of how we need to have developed this broader sense of, of what is right, what is fitting, what is appropriate, so that when we find ourselves in between mm-hmm. moral commands, that we can act in a way that's pleasing to God. Is there a connection between wisdom and Christian maturity? Well, I think absolutely. Uh, if, you read, if you read Proverbs, you get the real sense that wisdom is developed over a lifetime. It's not something that just we're, that we're born with. It's not something that just drops from heaven in, in an instant. Obviously, we're commanded to, to pray for wisdom. James 1, for example, we recognize it's God's gift. But if we're to be wise, you know, we're instructed to, to do things like learn from our mistakes, listen to our, to our elders, uh, um, take, take a rebuke well, uh, and you get statements like "wisdom is the crown of the aged" and things like that, which which suggests that it's um, uh, it's something that God gives over over uh, uh, a lifetime as we are sanctified. And it it comes in a context too, doesn't it? I mean, if if people are, for example, outside the visible uh, institutional church, if they're not attending to the means of grace, the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, that they are depriving themselves of really the essential prerequisites for wisdom. You can be mature, and absent those other things could certainly lack wisdom, right? Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's a great point. Uh, if you read Proverbs, you don't get the sense that we're just solitary individuals that are sort of just kind of learning how to do things, that we are people who are made in community just generally as human beings. And of course, when God calls us to himself in Christ, he doesn't call us just to himself as individuals, but he calls us into the church, uh, into the body, uh, into a community. And if we want to gain uh, the wisdom of Christ, as, as, as the New Testament uh, describes it, uh, then we better be uh, learning Christ. We better be knowing Christ. And, and Scripture points us to, uh, to the church, to, uh, to that community, and to the, uh, the ministry of the Word, if we are to be growing in that way. What are some of the questions, some of the pressing issues that uh, about which Christians are going to need to exercise wisdom in the coming years. So the ones that perhaps are, are right now, and, and are there some on the horizon that uh, you may have seen that we might not be aware of because of your, you know, your research? Well, I think that the um, probably the uh, the two areas right now that um, 
can often uh, immediately affect ordinary Christians, our uh, issues related to infertility and issues related to how do we care for someone at the end of life. Um, and the issue of infertility is obviously a very emotional one, a very difficult one for many Christian couples who who, who have trouble conceiving. And, and Grounded in a strong creation mandate. Right? That's I mean, right, right. I mean, it's a, it's a proper desire, proper human desire uh, to, to want to have children. Um, and yet it's a common problem that um, that many Christian couples face and there are there are so many options now out there I mean there there are so many things that can be done uh, to try to help the infertile conceive and uh, I think there are many that are very legitimate um, uh, and yet there are I mean there are, there are so many difficult moral decisions uh, that arise I mean there are some that uh, involve the possible destruction of human embryos. And so that's something that uh, Christians need to exercise wisdom uh, as they seek to avoid those sorts of scenarios. But there are uh, there are decisions about about financial stewardship, because some of these treatments are very expensive. Uh, there are uh, decisions about uh, the health of a marriage relationship. I mean, how much do you want to put yourselves through? Mm. There are questions about how else could I serve the Lord? Uh, are there opportunities to serve God and neighbor if I don't have children, then if I do, what about uh, adoption? Uh, might it be a, a wiser course to adopt an already needy child, to use my resources in that way than to seek mm. to, 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 to go through all sorts of uh, assisted reproduction technology? Now, the, I, for many of those things, there's no black and white answer, and there's no one answer that's going to suit every Christian couple. And so there... Um, so you're not publishing your phone number and and saying call me up and I'll tell you what to do. No, I'm not. <laughs> and in a in a sense, you know, that's that's why my book, even though it wasn't exactly, you know, this is a um, a publisher that uh, or a, a, a title that the publisher suggested, but a guide to making difficult decisions. It, it's that it's not a handbook that if you have a a specific question, you can find it on page seventy three or something. It's um, uh, these things require us to be thinking in a certain way, to be working with a certain certain theological convictions, to be growing in our in our godly wisdom, uh, so that we can analyze these different situations and pursue a course um, that uh, that is godly. It's not necessarily always going to be the same course that another person in a similar situation would pursue, and I think that's important to to recognize, and that's part of the whole question of wisdom. Would, would you say that your book really is designed to prepare people to face these issues, to orient them, and, and to give them the necessary framework in which to think, analyze, and and uh, get wisdom, and, and then make a, a, a good, uh, God-honoring decision? I think that's a very good way to put it. There are certainly some concrete decisions, some concrete answers that I give to, to some issues, but... For a whole lot of issues, the way you put it is very good, and I probably should have put it like that in my book. Maybe I did. <laughs> it's probably in there somewhere. Now, uh, for whom did you write this book? Who who are the intended readers? Sure, uh, it is. Uh, it's a book for ordinary, thoughtful Christians. Right, so um, anybody, so Christian laity, you don't have to be an elder or a minister to, to pick up this book, read it, and benefit from it. That's right. It's 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 not designed for those who have who have uh, uh, formal theological training. It's for people, uh, it, and 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 at the same time, it's not just for you know physicians or nurses or those who are working in in, in, in the healthcare industry either. Uh, it's for ordinary Christians uh, who face these very human problems uh, or who are 
who have to prepare themselves to face these problems, which in, inevitably all of us are going to face some of these questions at, at, at some point in life. Well, yeah, I mean, if Jesus, until Jesus returns, we, we all expect, we're all born with a death sentence, and so uh, these things are all going to be pressed on us. That's uh, right. So the title again is? Bioethics and the Christian Life, A Guide to Making Difficult Decisions. And the publisher is? Crossway. And it's available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, at wscal.edu slash bookstore. You, you just type uh, in David Vendrunen's name in the search box there, or click on the Faculty tab, and you'll see his uh, book. And, and I, I checked before, uh, before we sat down to do this uh, discussion, and uh, it's there. So uh, I, hope that, uh, I hope the listener will do that. Well, that's it for this edition of Office Hours. We'll be back next time for another episode. You can listen to Office Hours online. You can find us at wscal.edu slash office hours. And there you can subscribe or you can download it to your iPod or your MP3 player or, or even your Zoom. We're on Zoom now. So go to wscal.edu and click on Westminster Audio. For more information about this podcast or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu slash office hours or call us at 888 480 8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us online or call us at 888-480-8474. Or you can write us at office hours at wscal.edu. That's office hours one word at wscal.edu. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided you do not alter the wording in any way, and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to our website is preferred.